This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Corruption in the 21st Century, Combating Unethical Practices in Government, Commerce, and Society. The author is Vincent E. Green, and Vinny joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Vinny. Hello, how are you? Well, the news is filled with it. Seems like every day there's some other, there's a new a uh, new story about corruption. It seems to be epidemic. Uh, is that how you see it? Absolutely. You know, it's it's in uh, sound bites everywhere in the evening news, as you point out. Uh, the reality is that corruption, as you write, is more akin to a vampire literally sucking the lifeblood from a society, killing some and converting others. Boy, that's a, a graphic look at it. Why are you so, uh, I guess, why are you so immersed in this? I, I guess it's because you've been fighting it for so long. Yeah, I've, I've been doing it for 30 years, and I've seen how it's impacted the lives of so many people, not just in New York City where I've done most of it, but throughout the world. Um, and I don't think that people really grasp the understanding of corruption. You know, for most people, it's, it is just a soundbite in the evening news, and then they move on to the commercial and the next story. But in reality, it's, it impacts our everyday lives in ways that we don't even imagine. Um, and it, I always have this saying that, that nothing in life happens in a vacuum, because it really doesn't. And every time there's corruption, it's not just that thousand miles the guy's sold. There's somebody's service that's not being received. There's, there's a health care product that's not being done properly. There's some sort of service that, that people are entitled to that they're not receiving, and that impacts them not just today, but for the rest of their lives. Well, the, as you point out, the main business of government is procurement, and what usually that means is lots of money's involved. Absolutely. Billions, if not trillions of dollars. And that money often, unfortunately, or many, or maybe never gets to where it's supposed to go. In, in far too many instances. You know, and, and what's really important to understand, when I say that the main purpose of government is procurement, people miss that point so often. The reason why we have a government is for the government to provide us the services. And the government provides services by procuring those services. And if you can't procure it properly, then we're at a loss. And so we, of course... And corruption, and corruption causes that problem where we're constantly at a loss because people are stealing maybe a little bit here, a lot there, but at the end of the day, where one guy steals $1,000 and everybody's taking a little bit here and there, it adds up to billions, if not trillions of dollars that go where it's not supposed to go, and then we wonder why we, we're not getting the things that we're right. supposed to be getting. Right. Uh, we often, I think, for the most part, think about the... the the foreign aid that we send to other nations, and it often just goes into the pockets of the ruling uh, government at the time, never gets down to the people where, where we're hoping that the money gets to. Absolutely. I'm working with the government of Haiti right now uh, on putting together an anti-corruption program, a nationwide program, and one of the main obstacles I'm trying to overcome is the fact that a lot of the money that comes in from foreign sources to assist the country isn't going to where it's supposed to be going. So, and, if, and if we can't get the money where it's supposed to go, we can't even begin to combat the problems that the country the right. country's experiencing. Right. So, what allows the corruption to go on to be successful, and you know, in a corrupt, obviously, sort of way, the success of corruption? In a lot of instances, it's because it's become a part of the culture. It's accepted as part of the everyday life. And what needs to happen is is that people need to be re-educated, that it's not a part of the culture, you shouldn't be accepting it, and we need to stand up and say enough is enough. So now we're dealing with basically the morality of the individual. You're dealing with the morality of the individual, the culture, the nation, the state, you know, things along those lines. Right. I've done a lot of work with the country of Tanzania, 
And one of the things we did in Tanzania was institute an education process about corruption. You know, and, and they're out there in Tanzania, you know, speaking to the kids about corruption. They're not waiting for them to become adults. They're speaking to them at early ages that, no, this is not acceptable. We know what goes on, but it's not acceptable. And we want you kids to know at six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old that it's not acceptable. So education, therefore, is the important thing to battle corruption. You're, I mean, in most cases, that's what is lacking. From, from a long-term perspective, if you want to have some success, there's got to be an education program in place. The reality is that there's a certain level of there's a certain generation that we just have to say we, we we've lost them. There's a certain people, I guess, at, at our age, you know, and, and a little bit below that have have been so indoctrinated into it that they accept it as part of the, the culture and part of, of of the everyday life, and there's not much you're going to say that's going to change their mind about it. So then we have to say, okay. I've got to deal with you in another way, but there are other new generations coming in that we have to start to get to them and tell them, no, it's not part of the culture. You know, what's part of the culture is integrity, honesty. That's what we want to be, want to be a part of the culture, not the acceptance of anything that's negative. So the reader will be exposed to actual cases that you've been able to successfully defeat corruption. Absolutely, in a number of instances. And that again, not just defeat corruption, but people have gone to jail. And going to jail is not a big deal, really, in terms of corruption. But we've changed the system so it can't be repeated. And that's the key thing about fighting corruption. It's not about arresting the bad guy. It's about fixing the problem. So it's a revolution of the mind, as you point out. That's the really the key to this. How how do you uh, you know change the mindset? Oh, I guess it's going to. Well, I guess you're pointing some of that out. You got to start with the young, don't you? You do have to start with the young, but even when you're starting with, with, the, with the old or, or, or the, the not-so-young, you have to go out there and, and preach. You know, it's, it's almost like a gospel. You have mm -hmm. to go what we did in my agency, the Department of Investigation in the city of New York. We went around to every single city employee, and we lectured to them on the evils of corruption and the consequences of engaging in corruption, not just for them, you know, but for the people they work with, and to let them know that corruption has generational impacts. It doesn't just impact the guy today, it impacts the guys for years to come. I mean, when Mayor Bloomberg here in New York came into office, he had to lay off like 500 people. I look at the cases that we had involving corruption, and the amount of corruption we had in just one case amounted to the amount of money that he was short that he had to lay people off for. So if not for people stealing that money, mm -hmm. those 500 people would still have jobs. So it's not just stealing that money. You have 500 people who don't have jobs anymore. Those 500 people can't pay their mortgages. They can't send their kids to school. They can't do a number of things. And I know for a fact at least two of those 500 either committed suicide or attempted to commit suicide because they lost their jobs. So when I say corruption, is not, nothing in life happens in a vacuum. Those guys stealing what they stole wasn't just about stealing. It impacted at a minimum 500 lives. I find it really interesting that your current position with the city, it's, it's uh, titled Director of Vendor Integrity and Investigations. Uh, right. That's, uh, you know, that's a sign of the times, I guess, to have to have a, a, a department like that. Yeah. Well, where I'm at, we've got like $5 billion to spend in building new structures on college campuses, but we have to be careful that we don't have companies of poor integrity involved in this process because they're going to engage in corruption. And when you're dealing with construction, there's always the concern of, of organized crime seeping into it, as well as just, you know, unethical companies seeping into it. And it's my responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. Are there other agencies like yours, uh, you know, working with the same ends in mind or, or working together? Oh, absolutely. Well, the New York City Department of Investigation was the first agency ever um, formed with the sole purpose of fighting corruption. Now, there were other agencies out there that dealt with that, but it was one of 20 different things they were doing. But DOI only exists to fight corruption, and that's why I worked for 30 years. And DOI has been in existence for 140 years. It began with the Tammany Hall scandals in New York. That's how it came into being. But we were the first at, at, at DOI. Um, but since that, over the years, um, there have been hundreds for, of, of inspector general type offices and corruption fighting agencies that have been formed nationwide as well as worldwide. I've dealt with at least 75 countries myself who've come to DOI to discuss best practices and, and talk about how we do what we do. 
like I said, I've been to the country of Tanzania. I spent a lot of time training their people. Um, I, when I first got to Tanzania, they had 50 investigators. Now, 10 years later, they have over 2,000 investigators. And a lot of that is that a lot of what they're learning is based upon what I trained them to do when I first got there. And I'm constantly in touch with the director general there of, of the program. They spoke with him a few weeks ago. As a matter of fact, we just met and talked about you know, different corruption issues. I've been to the country of Liberia and helped them out with their issues. I'm dealing with Haiti right now. And I also spent a couple of days in the Republic of Georgia discussing corruption issues. One of the themes of your book, you, we've already talked about a couple of the themes, but another theme you say would be communication. Now explain to us uh, more on that theme. Communication is critical. For one thing, corruption has gone global. Um, when we were talking off the, off the air, I was telling you that one of the biggest problems with corruption right now is that technology has made it a lot easier. You know, I don't have to travel you know, to be corrupt, I, I have to do is sit at my computer screen and I can, you know, commit all kinds of different, you know, corrupt schemes throughout the world, if not just in my little city here. Um, but if each of us who are involved in the fight against corruption communicates and exchanges our cases, you know, the success of our cases, the phase of our cases, the people we're dealing with, we would be a lot more successful at combating this. When I got to Tanzania and I got off the plane and, they, and they're driving me to my hotel, as I'm driving through Dar es Salaam, I'm looking at different things going on, and I can see corruption as I'm driving. When, you, when you've done this long enough, you can, you can just smell it. Hmm. You know, and I'm saying that there's corruption in that construction problem there. You have an issue over here. You have an issue over there. And because I'm able to do that, it, I, it automatically tells me I have a responsibility to communicate my feelings, my ideas, my, my, my sense of what's going on to the individuals who were there. And they should be exchanging ideas with us. You're also dealing with a lot of companies that are international organizations, you know, that do business here in the United States, that do business in Canada, that do business in Tanzania, and so on and so forth. If they're all over the world, then we need to be all over the world. And it can't be, we can't operate in pockets. Whatever. Because operating in pockets, it, it, it causes, it, it, it breeds success for the bad guy. Hmm. One of the key messages of your book is a kind of an interesting phrase. You say, don't be afraid to be a scurvy elephant. <laughs> yeah. What is that about? Um, that comes actually from, from Dr. Um, Dwayne Dyer, Wayne Dyer, um, who, who I, I like his style of teaching. And he tells of a story of when he was in school where he said that his, his instructor called him a scurvy elephant. And he went to his mother and complained about it. And the mother went to the principal and said, why is you know, this teacher calling my son a scurvy elephant? And even what is a scurvy elephant? And the principal explained he wasn't being called a scurvy elephant. He was being called a disturbing element. <laughs> and he got it mixed up. <laughs> you know? But the thing is, that's what we need to be in this fight. We need to be disturbing elements in the fight. We have to be able to, you know, to turn things upside down and not mm. just accept it. So I said, let's all, be, let's all get hats to say scurvy elephants because we're going to go out there and we're going to disturb the elements out there. Well, that often is uh, obviously you're not popular when you're trying to turn things upside down because people, most people like the status quo or they don't want to uh, rock the boat because then, you know, who knows what's going to happen to them. Uh, Absolutely. Even when they, even, this business. yeah, and even when they see it going on, they they're afraid of it. I mean, they don't want to get caught up in it because they could get hurt by it, right? Absolutely. I tell people all the time: when you come into this business of fighting corruption, whatever friends you had, you better hold on to them because you're not going to make any new ones. Yes, you know, that's yeah. for sure. And in New York City, we have a rule that requires the employees to report corruption if they see if they see or hear about it. They don't have the option of saying it's not my business. That's a tough sell. Because people, who, when they report it, if it gets out, they've reported it, they've got to deal with the fact that people are now labeling them as, as somebody who, who talks. You know, and even though the, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do and the rules say that, that you do, the reality is when they find out that you've spoken to the Inspector General's office, you're considered to be a rat, a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. um, it shouldn't be that way. And we can just control the issue of whistleblowers, of whistleblowers not having to fight so hard to get the information to where it belongs. We can help the whistleblower not be labeled as a whistleblower, but being labeled as a hero who's stepping up and doing what needs to be done. That would go so far in fighting, in, in fighting this problem. So, as you put it, we must seize the day. Carpe diem. That's it. We've got to seize the day. Seize it. You know, we, we, we've got to recognize that um, you know, we're here to do a job. 
you know, we, we, especially when we're dealing with government, you accepted this job. I told you you were coming here, and I was going to pay you X number of dollars. If I'm giving you that X number of dollars, don't start complaining to me about the guy next door making more than that. I'm giving you what I promised you. I'm keeping my contract. You live up to your end of the contract. And I tell guys all the time, don't come to work to be appreciated because it's not going to happen. And it's not that I don't appreciate you because I, I appreciate everybody that works for me, but no one is ever appreciated to the degree they think they should be appreciated. If I walk in today and I say good morning to you and I don't say good morning to the guy sitting next to you, and he's got an attitude because I didn't say good morning to him. Maybe I just didn't see him. or There could be a number of reasons why it didn't happen, but now he's got an attitude and he's pissed off at everybody that comes in you know, to, to deal with him. If you don't come to work to be appreciated, you won't have that problem. Come to work to do your job. If you want to be appreciated, get a dog, get married, go speak to your priest. <laughs> but don't come to work for it. It's not there. And be of service, I guess. That's what you're saying. You've got to serve. You've got to think of the other person or the other situ- that other situation. Yeah. When I get up in the morning, and I say this all the time, the first thing I think about other than thanking the Lord that I'm up is whose life can I change today? And, my, and when I say whose life can I change today, I'm talking about who can I change, whose life can I change in a positive way, because right. that's my job. Well, I'll tell you, if you we know, had my a... Job is- we had a nation. I'm a of life pe- changer. Yeah, we have, if we had a nation of people waking up with that in mind, this country would be drastically different. It would. I've I've been doing this now for more than 30 years, and I've never woken up and not wanted to go to work. Not one day. I went 29 years with the Department of Investigation with never taking a sick day. Well, and it's not so much that, that I, I don't get sick. You know, I'm not claiming to be Superman, but for some reason, my body and my mind are so in tune that I only get sick on weekends and holidays. <laughs> when, when, when everybody, when your mind knows that you got the day off. That, that's, <laughs> that's it. My, my family's never well, crazy Vinny, about that, but that's the way my body works. Well, I think everybody understands uh, Vinny's determined philosophy of life, and I'm sure this is, permeates your book, Corruption in the 21st Century, Combating Unethical Practices in Government, Commerce, and Society. Vinny, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can get the book from our university's website. You can also go to my website, which is www.combatingcorruption.com. It's also on Barnes & Noble, and you can get it from Amazon as well. Thank you. And, of so- course, in the bookstores. Of course. Uh, Vinny, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vasley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Parsi's Wish, and the author is Jay Nicholas. 
And Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. Great to Hi. Have, Glad great, to be here. Well, Thank you for the opportunity. Well, great to be with you. This is quite a story, this espionage thriller, uh, as you write, set mainly in Paris and Manhattan and the Jersey Shore uh, shortly before the fall of the Soviet Union. It's all about betrayal, lies, and cover-ups as the protagonist is drawn into an illegal international covert operation, which, of course, uh, uh, is designed to expedite that fall by supplying large-scale weapons to Soviet surrogates. So it sounds like reality. It sounds like a news report from today, all the crazy things that keep going on. Yes, yeah, well... um there's a um, later on in the book. There's a, um, uh, there's a comment that somebody makes. One of the, the protagonists asks one of the other people. He said, "How did how did you ever come across this in the in the book?" And he said, "Well, you know, only the most naive amongst us would think that when Iran Contra happened, that there weren't other bigger and more important things going on." Right, right. So this Parsi, tell us about. Parsi, this title. What what okay. is the significance of that? Sure, Parsi, uh, P-A-R-C-A-E, um, is the name for the ancient Roman goddesses of fate, F-A-T-E. So it's mythological um, in its in its origin. So the concept is Parsi's wish, which is the title of the book. How could fate have a wish? So if something like fate wants to have a wish, then obviously that's that's heavy-duty stuff to at least fate, if you will. And so um, when people ask me, because there is a character in a book called Parsi, and she comes in and out of the, of the book, and when people ask me, readers ask me, is Parsi real? And I just sort of shrug my shoulders and say, you tell me. So this, this president of an entertainment company, this multinational conglomerate, uh, you've, because of your background, you've had experience with that. And so That's you... correct. In fact, one, one of the interesting things is the fact that um, I worked for um, uh, RKO um, Motion Pictures, Radio and TV, RKO General a number of years ago. I was IT vice president. I worked out of Manhattan uh, directly for the president. And one of the things when people ask me, well, how could this guy involved with uh, entertainment, that there's another division that's getting involved with uh, weapons of sort of mass destruction, if you will, and I said, well, I could tell you that happens. I'm not saying illegally, because when I worked at RKO, one of our other sister divisions was a division called Aerojet General, based out of the West Coast. And they did things like parts for the Minuteman, Polaris missiles, etc. So what kind of synergism or, you know, what did we have in common making motion pictures, TV, and radio, um, if, if you will, with somebody involved with heavy-duty armaments? So... This, and the concept in the book, when people say, gee, that doesn't make a lot of sense, I said, well, I can tell you it does. <laughs> it's the real world now. Kind of set real the, world. Kind of set the stage for us with Christoph Douglas, this president of this entertainment company, and what he gets involved with. Well, essentially, um, what happens is um, it, he's, it, it starts off in the beginning, basically, and, and he's there's some business aspects. He's driving down the Jersey Shore, and he calls back, uh, calls his, his secretary, and, and they're talking on the phone, and she gives him some of the messages, and she says, and Miss Kelso called. And he says, I don't know her. And he goes on. And then he continues driving down the shore, and he's thinking about the girl that he was engaged to uh, after high school before he went to Vietnam, and the three wishes she made on the beach. And his reverie is broken by a call from his wife, um, said, where are you? And he says, I'm just pulling in the driveway. In any event, when he gets to the, to the shore home, he's, he's going upstairs to change, and his wife says, by the way, your secretary called again, and she said that Miss Kelso called and wanted to speak to you, said you would know who she was. He said, I don't know her. Anyway, the weekend goes on. He goes back to his office on Monday, and he's sitting in his office, and his secretary comes running in and says, it's she, it's she. And there on the front page of the papers is a picture, fuzzy, of course, of this woman, Miss Kelso, that called him. She was murdered. And then he has a funny feeling about this, obviously. Um, and then things happen, whatever. And then 
about two days or three days later, he gets a posthumous letter from her. He opens it up, a picture of his wife falls out when she was in Paris. And then the letter goes on to explain that it is his former fiancée, um, and she's an investigative journalist, and she was investigating this other division that's involved with illegal um, armaments, distribution of armaments to uh, Soviet Union um, surrogates, if you will. And she says the reason she finally contacted him is because her life was threatened, but more importantly, he, they used his, her maiden name as well as said, after you, Miss Lardelia, we will take out Mr. Douglas. And so she was frightened beyond all belief because that meant they knew about the relationship they had 15 years later. So now he's, this is a posthumous letter. And so what happens goes on later on, you know, in unfolds on how he's drawn into this thing. So will fate really come to pass? Well, Parsi is going to say, basically, because I don't want to give the total ending away, right. but basically Parsi is going to say it was their destiny to be together. It's just like all of everybody else's destiny. Um, there's, a, there's a dream sequence later on in the book where... Um, all the characters sort of meet at this little bistro that La Duma go in Paris, which he always goes back to. And basically it starts off with Katja, his wife, uh, having a cup of coffee with Maria, the gal that Miss Kelso that got uh, murdered. And uh, Katja starts asking her, why did you come back? He had forgotten about you. Now, you don't realize it's a dream, but then you quickly do because the characters in it that have occurred over the last two weeks. But the reason I mention this is because right at the end of the dream, everything stops, and all of a sudden this woman with like dark uh, patches over her eyes glides over the restaurant floor and says, looking at Christoph, they are wrong, Christoph. It was our destiny to be together. So, so a lot of twists and turns here. A lot of twists yeah, and turns. Yeah, there's a <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. Keeps, you, keeps of, us guessing a lot, I'm sure, of what's next. Yeah, I, well, that's, that's some of the feedback I got. I, I will say this, you know, speaking of, like, mythology or whatever, when I was writing this thing, uh, I'm telling you, I was walking around my, my home, and I could hear the computer keys clicking Somebody else was doing it. It was it was Arado, the the you know the the the, the, the muse of, of prose, doing it because I don't. Some of these things I I have no idea where it came from. I mean, a lot of the facts. It, the book is not autobiographical. Uh, number one, although I do mention, as I did, you know, about that I was with the entertainment company, etc. And this guy is an entertainment company. Uh, I do. I'm, I'm a, I have an honorable discharge from the New Jersey National Guard. I never served in Vietnam uh, or saw combat, although Christoph is, does go to Vietnam and um, uh, what happens as a result and how he meets some other people. Um, I was stationed in Fort Rucker, Alabama for helicopter school, not as a pilot, but what it was called in those days, forward flight observer. This is before you had, you know, the technology. The technology in those days was, was the eyes of the guy sitting in the helicopter saying that's where you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that, although I said it's not autobiographical, there's a lot of background that I that I do have that I could call upon. That it's not just totally, you know, totally made up, if you will. So Parsi comes in and out of his life, and we're really not sure about who she is. Uh, no, because in fact, one of the things it's it it takes place mostly. In 87, as you mentioned, right before the collapse of the Soviet Union over about a two-week period. But whenever I use the italics, it's the present. He's thinking back mm-hmm. on what has happened because the prologue says right away what's going to go on when she, she says to him, don't do this, Parsi, because this time you'll have your wish and the gods will finally let you die. So, but he's now thinking back when he's in this process of taking a sailboat out into the storm um, and in this deserted island, and he's thinking back of what happened that led to this point in time. 
So we've got betrayal in this, a failed marriage, uh, a murder of his young daughter. Well, basically, yes, what happens, uh, and a lot of this, there's no, I was married for 33 years. And my wife passed away a few years back, but the point is we didn't have any daughter that was murdered or anything. There's no, it's part of this, and I'm not sure what the literary term is, but part of it is, is contrivance because he's not going to do what he's going to do if he had everything perfect in his life. Mm-hmm. If his fiance came back from 15 years ago, if all these other things didn't happen. Um, um, and, you know, I, I used his daughter was killed or murdered, whatever, because um, that's a contrivance on that sort of thing. And she was actually killed by a drunken driver. But it also showed because he was going to, you know, I know Grisham did this, but I think I did this before Grisham, that he was going to guarantee a no-show. And it showed that he was capable of doing certain things, partially because he was in the Army and some other things. But, and the failed marriage really is the fact that because of the death of their daughter, they just drifted apart. They, were no, they weren't bad people, if you know what I'm trying to say. Right. And I'm not judging anybody. I don't mean it that way. But, you know, it's, it's a contrivance because how is he going to go and finish the story, if you will, that Maria was exposing and mainly he's doing it because part of it is the other company, part of his company, and basically they killed her. Uh, right, so this... if he was had a happy marriage and everything like that, he would certainly be beside himself, but he wouldn't say vengeance is, is mine. Because it is about revenge and destiny. It's, it's about, there's a lot of... It's, it's, but mostly it's about fate, as I, as I said, about how... Um, you know, there's a line in the book in the beginning where, in the prologue, where she says, don't go, because even even the gods cannot get what they want if it is not meant to be. And again, it's mythology. Right. This is not about anybody's personal religion or, you know, what I'm trying to say. So we have mergers, buyouts, government lies, cover-ups, mistaken military service in Vietnam, as we've just mentioned, revenge, and this fate, this question of fate. Yeah, and F-E-T-E, right, not, right. not religious faith. No, but fate, and also interesting title, uh, Parsi's Wish, because can fate wish? So great job, Joe. It sounds like uh, you've got all the makings of can't-put-it-down kind of a book. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of positive things. I mean, you know, not everybody, it's like anything, you know, I, I'll tell you this, I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, let me just read you a real quick two sentences, a review, not a review, but uh, well, she's sort of like a friend of mine, but she read the book, and um, um, here's what she wrote. It's on Amazon when she bought it. She said, I enjoyed the book very much. The author combines mystery, espionage, and parapsychology into one volume. It touches on the mystery of being human and how we all deal with the conundrums that life tosses our way in a believable fashion. I, you know, I don't know where she got that because <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> Very well said. Very well said. Well, it sounds like Very it's Very well said. I couldn't have, I couldn't have written that. <laughs> sounds like it sums up your book just, uh, just the way it is. So, Parsi's Wish, Jay Nicholas, the author. Right. Joe, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on any online uh, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble does carry it. Um, iUniverse, certainly. Um, just any online retailer, you can, you can get it. Um, and if you're in Naples, um, let, let me also, Steve, is it okay if I use my real name? Sure. Because my real name is Joe Fedorik, F-E-D-O-R-Y-K. In fact, they put it in the local papers recently, and they asked me that because nobody would know who Jay Nicholas is. And so if anybody's down in Naples, feel free to give me a call. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for thank being you. with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. 
Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Journey to a Brave New World, and the author is David Watts, and David Watts joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Well, great to have you with us. The subtitle really sets this up even more, of course, uh, Journey to a Brave New World, the startling evidence that humanity is being manipulated towards a very grim future, but we can change direction. That's the hope and the positive side to this book. It, uh, it is what it is. I think we see it in the news everywhere. And, of course, we all remember A Brave New World. Aldous Huxley wrote that back. When did he write that? Well, he wrote it in 1931. It was published in 1932. So here was a man who could see it coming. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, uh, again, he, he wrote Brave New World Revisited in 1952, just uh, further saying that um, his, uh, his vision that, that was depicted in 1932 was, uh, was certainly moving along nicely. So why did you write this book? And you've written another book as well. There's a couple of books you've written. Yeah, uh, this book and then uh, part two of it, um, Journey to Brave New World Part Two. But uh, the reason I wrote uh, these books was to try and help people wake up to, to what is happening in our world, uh, how we're being manipulated and engineered towards a, you know, a vision, as I say, that uh, is not going to be very good for the majority of us. Um, so, uh, you know, I wanted something to be able to be a quick read for those that uh, wanted to at least explore it and also as a tool for those that were awake but had difficulties in waking up their friends and family to what was really happening. Well, let's get an overview. Tell us, you just, you know, just uh, give us a snapshot and maybe we'll get into some details later, but just kind of give us an overview of your first book. Yeah, well, the first book, um, what it does is I start off by taking what appears to be unconnected but some bizarre news reports and show some of the backstories uh, to those and some of the important questions that haven't been uncovered by so-called journalists. And, um, you know, just as what one example was the um, uh, a news report that went out uh, uh, explaining that um, there will always be a human behind uh, uh, the drones and, uh, you know, there will be no automated killing of people using drones. And yet when you look at the um, research uh, that's been done within the, uh, the Marine Corps and their robotics division, uh, their stated goal is to create a fully autonomous uh, 
unmanned ground weapon system. So you know, it, it goes completely against the, uh, the news reports that we see. Uh, and then you know, I cover off the, um, really the history of banking and how the central bankers uh, effectively create money out of nothing and then use that ill-gotten gains to manipulate events uh, to further consolidate wealth uh, for, the, uh, for the 1%. So you see a conspiracy. It's very clear to you. Oh, it is absolutely clear. Um, there is a small group of people that are controlling the world. Uh, they essentially control all of the banking, all of the media outlets, and both sides of the political spectrum, as was um, confirmed by Carol Quigley in 1960 in his book, uh, Tragedy and Hope. And he was one of the insiders and just wanted to tell everybody. Yeah, he was actually, the uh, apart from being a professor of history at uh, Browns and Princeton, uh, he was the official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, and he... Uh, uh, again, confirmed that he had access to all of their documents uh, for two years. And um, he said back in the 60s in his book that uh, the both sides of the political spectrum were really being run by the same group, which heralded out of the World well, Institute of International Affairs, the Roundtable and the Milner Group, that then spun off to become the Council on Foreign Relations. And that really there is no left and right uh, because they're all controlled by the same uh, puppet or, or hand in the middle. Now, you're in your second book, Brave New World, and what is it titled, the full title? Uh, Brave New World Part 2, with Part the subtitle U.S. Civilian Labor Camps, the Trojan Horse for the Communist Takeover of the United States and the Plan to Stop It. Mm. So, in, in this book, uh, what I do is I detail out the plans and procedures that are already in place uh, for civilian inmate labor camps within the United States. And I then detail out the, uh, the build-up of the Department of Homeland Security with their two-plus-something billion rounds of ammo, the mine-resistant armored vehicles that they purchased, the thousands of Heckler Koch machine guns, uh, all of it. Uh, detailing out using actual government uh, documents um, and um, uh, contract award information. Well, those are chilling words when you start talking about civilian inmate labor camps. Uh, but obviously, with the latest news, the way they're spying on us, and Obama doesn't seem to think that's wrong. It's, you know, just trust the government, right? Yep, trust the government, and by the way, um, you don't need any weapons. Uh, the only people that are allowed to be having weapons in the future will be the Department of Homeland Security. Sounds rather like uh, Nazi Germany to me. Well, uh, what, what would the readers find controversial in your book that just would just rub them the wrong way? Well... Uh, the, the readers might find uh, a lot of things controversial. Um, you know, the one ch in uh, one chapter in the first book, the depopulation agenda, I uh, show that there is a plan to have a massive depopulation of the world uh, to at least ninety, down to even ninety-five percent. And people might find that controversial because they just couldn't believe that a, a small group of people would have that uh, goal. But uh, I, again, I do uh, provide a great deal of uh, uh, evidence and research that I've uncovered, uh, both from the writings of the so-called elites. Um, you know, also detail out things like the Georgia Guidestones, which is a set of stones, sometimes called the American Stonehenge. Uh, which has the uh, written on it uh, what they call the Ten Commandments of the Georgia Guidestones, and the first of those commandments is to maintain humanity at levels of 500 million. Uh, we stand at 7 billion roughly at the moment, so that would mean 6.5 billion people would have to be uh, 
not on this planet. So do you see that coming through war or just genocide? Well, I, it's, it's a full-spectrum attack. Um, it's done through vaccinations. As Bill Gates said, that uh, they would um, manage the population and reduce the population by use of vaccines. It's done through uh, genetically modified foods. It's done through fluoridated water. And that's why you see reports, even the British broadcasting company, BBC, last week came out and said that by 2020, uh, half of the UK population will die of cancer. Well, you, that, uh, mm. Those statistics are just incredible. And if you look at the uh, infertility rates, the re huge reduction in sperm count, particularly in the Western world where fluoridated water is used, uh, you will see that there is a, a definite uh, depopulation agenda there. And again, they do use wars to, um, uh, to try and make a dent. But again, you know, all of this is, is planned. It's documented in the writings of Bertrand Russell. Uh, John Holdren, who is Obama's science czar, wrote in his book, uh, Eco-Science, Population, Resources and Environment, in the 1970s, along with Paul Ehrlich and Anne Ehrlich, that to control population, they would uh, include adding a sterilant to the water or food supply. And of course, shortly after that, we see the massive increase in fluoridated water in the United States. And cancer seems to be at epidemic rates it seems like everybody i mean there's nobody there isn't anybody that doesn't know somebody with cancer no that's right and um of course they they know what what it's uh, what it's doing uh, or, or how the cancer is caused you only have to look at uh the plastics that they use for uh drinking water or the liner of uh, food cans it contains bisphenol A. Bisphenol A, um, it leaches into the, uh, into the food and water, mimicking estrogen, which uh, certainly in women causes cancer, and uh, a you know, high dosage or regular dosage of estrogen for men uh, can make them more effeminate. Well, we want to get to some of your recommendations. In fact, you say you have a 45-step plan that we must take to change direction and return the U.S. to its former glory. Uh, but you just wanted to make just a comment that you also believe that we've been lied to about the events of 9-11. Uh, we've only got, uh, like, if you could just share about a minute's worth on that, and then we'll get to what you see we must do. But just quickly talk about 9-11. Yes, uh, unfortunately, we were lied to about 9-11. Uh, some of the smoking guns in a, in a very uh, quick um, overview here is World Trade Center 7. It collapsed into its own footprint at near free full speed. There were fires only on about four or five of those floors. Um, it was a 47-story building. Um, as I say, it collapsed at near free full speed. And um, it didn't even get a mention in the 9-11 Commission report. Uh, but also interestingly is that BBC and CNN reported that it had collapsed 20 minutes before it actually did. Clearly, uh, they got the timing of their scripting wrong. And then when you look at the, the Pentagon, uh, I have pictures of the Pentagon before the roof collapsed, and all you see is a 16-foot diameter hole. There is no way that a Boeing 757 with a 124-foot wingspan and a tail height of 44 foot could possibly fit into a 16-foot hole. So, yes, 9-11, unfortunately, um, we were lied to about that. Give us a few of your steps to help us change direction and literally take our country back. Well, uh, as I say, in, in the second book, I detail out 45 steps. Um, I've not got them in any particular order. Uh, but I do believe that uh, communism is being used to grind us down and uh, make us a more moral country. And, and uh, so with that, uh, the first step that I uh, put down in my book uh, was to reinstate the doings on the un-American activities. Uh, the next step uh, would be to kick out the Federal Reserve uh, and introduce an amendment to ensure that central banks were never allowed to operate in the United States again. 
And I mentioned it earlier about fluoridation of water that immediately stopped fluoridation of water supply. Um, if we look back in the um, in 1939, there was a, a hearing on the Un-American activities, and in there they said that fluoridation of water was a communist plan to make the American public more docile so that they would not uh, revolt against the encroachment of communism. So those are just three of the uh, three of the steps that uh, that I've outlined in my second book. Well, there's certainly a lot written out there uh, about you know the future, about uh, the takeover of America. What makes you so different? I think uh, what I try to do is to provide as much evidence and information, but in a very quick and easy-to-read book. Uh, there's many out there that are excellent, but, again, those books can often be four or 500 pages long, making it very difficult for someone who's kind of thinking about it to actually you know, want to pick it up and read it. Uh, this you can read uh, very quickly, um, certainly in a day, but some have said that they've managed it in a few hours. Um, I also give a lot of um, reference points and also some other uh, research um, materials for the for the reader to to go and check out. Well, thank you very much, David Watts, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. His book. Journey to a Brave New World and Journey to a Brave New World Part 2. He's got two books. Tell us how to get your books, David. Well, you can go to iUniverse.com and uh, search for Journey to a Brave New World. And, uh, or you can also go to my website, JourneyToABraveNewWorld.com, and both are available there. Or they're available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and other online bookstores. Again, thank you for being with us. We appreciate you sharing your insights, and it's uh, very sobering, but uh, there is hope if we will just stand up as we the people, right? Exactly. We can change direction. We just need people to wake up and uh, get off the couch and do something about it.